Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. Welcome, everybody, for the first time in the relatively brief history of A Gentleman's Disagreement. We just have one gentleman with you today. This is Brendan. I am flying solo for the first time at Ricky's or with Ricky's permission. As we mentioned on the last episode, Ricky and his fiance, as we record, by the time this comes out, it will be his wife, Ginny, will have are getting married this weekend, and then they are off to their mini moon, which is a new thing that if you're young, you probably know that your friends do take a take a few days break to decompress after all the the wedding planning and the, the craziness of the around the ceremony to just decompress with each other for a few days. We hope that they are currently having a lovely time. But with that said, Ricky and I knew that we wanted to get one more episode in before the midterms. And in particular, we wanted to do a Supreme Court overview. Um, the Supreme Court has been central to the, these midterm elections because of particularly their decision in, in the abortion case, the, the Dobbs case, but other decisions as well, including the New York gun case and the religious freedom cases that um, happened in Maine and, and in Washington. Ricky and I have talked about those before. But it feels like the Supreme Court only comes into the news when there's just a really seismic decision. And as most people probably know, those decisions drop every June. And so I was just trying to think back on some of the more notable cases where it feels like the Supreme Court's dominating the headlines. I don't think anything has done as much as Dobbs has over the past four months. But you have Obergefell, which uh, legalized gay marriage here. You have Heller, which provided which expanded gun rights back in in 2008 maybe citizens united which allowed companies to pour more money into elections but but those are the really the cases that or the obamacare that was obviously a big one so but it just feels like the supreme court after everyone has all this commentary and exaltation or outrage around a decision in June. And then it kind of fades back into irrelevance until you have another one of these a few years later, but everything is tied together. And the people that you vote for, particularly for Senate are the ones that are going to confirm judges. And so if, especially in a Senate that has been so narrowly divided in recent years, a, a, a Senator here or a Senator there is able to potentially confirm or prevent confirmation of a judge that a president wants. So it is all tied together. And if there are so many reasons that are more immediate that people should go vote for, but this is another one. And so it's not, you're just not, you're not gonna have to just listen to me for an hour. We are welcoming on an expert, a constitutional law and Supreme court expert, professor Barry McDonald, who we'll have on in a minute. And professor McDonald is going to give us a rundown of five of the major cases that are in front of the Supreme Court this term. That term started this month in October. They will continue to hear cases for the next few months. Then they will spend a few months writing decisions and then release the vast majority of those decisions in June. But as opposed to waiting till those decisions come out to have an opinion on it, hopefully we can start here. And then if people so choose, they can continue to follow up on their own online newspapers, other other sorts of podcasts in terms of what's going on with the Supreme Court. It feels like whatever you you thought or think about President Trump, it feels like his entrance into the political scene brought millions of new people into the political process, either for or against him. And I wonder if Dobbs will have that same effect of people that were outraged by the decision or were super excited about the decision, maybe that brings more people into the world of law and the Supreme Court and paying attention to what happens because it's as the third co-equal branch of the government, it's super impactful. But enough from me, before we bring uh, 
Professor McDonald on. Just a quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. As you know, they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky did not get my pun last week, which was super disappointing about two trees blossoming into a beautiful relationship. That was supposed to be an allegory for him and his fiance, now wife, Ginny. But we'll see if he gets this one. I know he won't because secret Ricky never listens to these episodes. He's actually never listened to one of them because he hates the sound of his own voice. Actually, so maybe he'll listen to this one because it's just me talking. But uh, I, if, if Ricky was here, I, I would ask him, what do you plant when you want kisses? Tulips. So hopefully... Ricky planted a few of those this weekend. But without further ado, let's bring on Professor McDonald to give us his expertise on the Supreme Court. All right, we are now thrilled to welcome Professor Barry McDonald to the program. Uh, Professor McDonald is a professor of law at the Caruso School of Law, Pepperdine University. He is on today because he is a recognized expert on constitutional law in the United States Supreme Court. He has written frequently for such major media outlets as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and he's appeared also frequently on such programs as CBS Evening News, CNN, Fox News, NPR. He, in particular, is a recognized scholar in the areas of constitutional law and First Amendment law, which is going to be great for our analysis today. Prior to joining the faculty of Pepperdine in 2000, Professor McDonald graduated from Loyola University of Chicago. He then got his JD from the Northwestern School of Law. After getting his JD, he clerked for two years, including for the Chief Justice of the United States, William Rehnquist. He, following those clerkships, he worked for the State Department and in private practice for a few years. So, Professor McDonald, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, my pleasure, Brendan. Thanks for inviting me on. Truly, truly our pleasure. So, first of all, I have five cases that I am keeping an eye on this term that I would like to get your thoughts on in a minute. But before we get into that, as I'm sure people are well aware and you are well aware, the court's standing right now is at really an all-time low since it's been tracked in the American public. Gallup just came out with a poll just in the past month where it said that less than half of Americans have either a great deal or a fair amount of trust in the judicial branch, which was a remarkable like 20% drop from two years ago. It's the lowest approval rating for the court since Gallup started doing the poll in 1972, where the court generally over the last 50 years has polled out a two-thirds approval rate, which is in marked contrast to things like the presidency or the media or Congress in particular. But now the Supreme Court's kind of been dragged down to those levels, largely uh, amongst more liberal or democratic people, given the court's decisions in the last term around the, the, the key controversial issues of guns and, and abortion. So the justices over the summer Many of them addressed it head on. Justice Kagan in particular seems to be quite concerned about it and worried about the legitimacy of the court in the eyes of the people. On the far end of the spectrum, you have Justice Alito, who was pr- pretty much says, like, who cares if you disagree with the decision? That doesn't, we shouldn't be calling it a question, the legit- legitimacy of the court. And then you have the Chief Justice, Justice Roberts, who seems to be very concerned about it, but also doesn't want to be seen as like giving in and is also trying to draw the line between you might not like a decision or decisions that we have, but that doesn't mean we're becoming less legitimate. So how are you seeing this this play out um, in terms of like the legitimacy of the court in the eyes of the people? Well, the, you know, the court has always been political in the sense that uh, our constitution made it possible for you know, nine unaccountable actors to make a lot of public policy uh, in this country. And they, in, in, you know, they haven't shied away from doing that, at least since the early 20th century with the whole Lochner era and the adoption of, you know, this implied liberty of contract by the more conservative justices, which is sort of ironic because it's the conservatives today that complain about 
implying rights into the Constitution, yet they were the one that began the whole thing back in the early 20th century. Um, but I think what has changed, particularly, and I think you've seen these uh, poll numbers go down in, in just the last few years, and I think that what has changed is that the politicization of the Supreme Court has gone to a whole new level. I mean, uh, so, you know, you had President Trump campaigning on appointing justices, you know, and he wasn't the first one, of course, Ronald Reagan and George Bush, they did the same thing, appointing appointing justices that would overturn Roe versus Wade. Uh, what is new is sort of, uh, and they'll also protect your Second Amendment rights, et cetera. And, you know, he actually got the chance to, to appoint, as you know, three three seats and with, uh, you know, two other very conservative seats. Now they have a solid conservative majority. And, and so they have been exercising that muscle, you know, in, in these controversial areas of abortion, gun rights, uh, uh, religious freedom, et cetera. And um, I think what has changed, you know, from the public perception standpoint is this majority simply doesn't seem to care about the perception They've come out of the gates so aggressively, you know, oh, oh, you know, in the first year that they've had a solid majority overturning Roe versus Wade, uh, extending dramatically uh, rights that weren't even recognized, you know, in terms of individual gun possession before 2008. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just like they, they, they just have said to themselves, all right, uh, it's our time <laughs> and, you know, uh, opportunities for a solid majority can be fleeting. And so we're going to take the opportunity and public perceptions be damned. And I think that, you know, I think what's happened is that, you know, the, they've done that and the public has reacted. So I'm curious on that because Alito is really the face of that. But in a sense, you have Thomas not far behind him and, and Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett falling in some sort of order behind that. And there's, as you mentioned, if you're a conservative ideologue who has waited a generation or more to have this kind of ideological balance on the court, you want them to act as much as possible to start tearing down all of these precedents that you viewed as wrong that have, again, quote unquote, wrongly accumulated over these past 50 or so years. But there's danger in that, too. There's there's a, the, the legitimacy of the court. The court doesn't enforce its own rulings. It needs the executive. It needs one. The the backing of the executive branch, but also just the general acceptance of the people to abide by their rulings. We, we see it most strikingly in our history, probably around Brown, but we could be seeing it in a similar sense now around, around the Dobbs decision. So I'd be curious, just your perspective of if you are a conservative, how concerned should you be about the legitimacy of the court in the eyes of the people versus let's just notch as many victories that we believe are, have been a long time coming? Well, I mean, I can't see a, a recurrence of the Brown versus Board uh, of Education episode where, you know, the southern states essentially defied the Supreme Court and, and to, you know, refused to desegregate until Congress started threatening to, you know, withdraw funding. Uh, the president sent in troops. So, you know, there really was no movement until you had the purse and the sword, Congress's purse and the executive sword get behind the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, with respect to abortion, you know, what they're doing is they're, they're, you know, abortion is a different issue because unlike Brown, which basically said, okay, uh, we're going to take certain issues like race segregation in the schools outside of the democratic process. Uh, you know, abortion is now sending it back into the political process. So, I, I, you know, it, it, in, a, in a sense, it's, it's a democracy affirming decision, even though a lot of people obviously don't like it. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that, you know, I think what I'm seeing is people sort of just accepting that and starting to, to fight this out at the political level and at the state level. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people think that that's where it should be. Yeah, and that's that's certainly exactly what Justice Alito said in his in, in his opinion. So for him, I, I think that's exactly what he's hoping for. One more question before we get into the cases. I read an article by Amy Howe, who writes for the website scotusblog.com. And if anybody's interested in learning more far beyond what we're going to discuss today, it's a great website to get like a, at least a general overview of the court. 
and one of the lines in it was this is chief, Ju- chief justice roberts is the chief justice but this is justice thomas's court and how how much are you seeing this court where it's where it has been in the last year where it might be going this term and in the future as what justice thomas has been working for for 30 years well certainly um you know Justice Thomas has been remarkably successful at getting four of his colleagues to buy into a new method of constitutional interpretation. And it's not called originalism. It's called exclusive originalism. I mean, that's all we care about is sort of history, (laughs) beginning with the Heller case. And, uh, you know, that just hasn't happened in, in the history of the court. I mean, history has always been important historical understandings of constitutional provisions, but as one important source of constitutional argumentation and interpretation, along with other sources, like, you know, obviously precedent, uh, the text of the constitution, structural principles, and even, uh, you know, obviously for living constitutionalists, you know, current societal values and needs. But uh, Thomas, you know, after he sort of moved out of Justice Scalia's shadow, uh, started insisting, you know, okay, we need to just look at original understanding. And and I don't think it, it, a lot of people took him seriously for a long time. Uh, um, but, you know, it, you know, he, his persistence has borne fruit uh, because, you know, we see in, in the gun cases, uh, we see in, in the Dobbs ruling, you know, uh, now in the establishment clause area, the court, you know, focusing uh, almost exclusively on historical understandings to the consternation of people that believe that the Constitution should be adapted to sort of meet, you know, modern conditions and societal needs. Right. It's it's really the culmination of the work that the Federalist Society has been doing for 40 years since its creation. But Thomas, as the face of it, I don't know that many people would have predicted that even 15 or 20 years ago, let alone when he first joined the, the court 30 years ago. Um, so let's let's get into the cases. As a First Amendment specialist, I want to start with the First Amendment case. So this case for short is 303 Creative LLC versus Alenis. And this case is another Colorado case that's going to evoke a previous Colorado case for a lot of people. So back in 2018, somewhat famously, the, the gay wedding cake, um, there was a a wedding cake designer who refused to make a wedding cake for a gay couple, citing his religious beliefs. The justices ruled generally in his favor, saying that the that Colorado had displayed bias against his religious views in ruling that he couldn't refuse to make a case for a gay a cake for a gay couple. This is going to push that ruling potentially a little bit further. So in this case, the plaintiff. Um, Lori Smith is an artist and a website designer who only wants to create websites that promote her, her idea again of that marriage is between one man and one woman. And so that making any other website that challenged her religious conviction of what a, a marriage is would violate her First Amendment um, right to fr- freedom of practice. So the justices are going to decide whether Colorado's law to compel an artist to speak or stay silent violates the free speech clause of the first amendment. So um, professor, can you give us just a little bit of overview, maybe fill in anything that I missed and then tell us what do you think the court's going to do here? Yeah. I mean, Brendan, I think you did a good job of, you know, saying that this is basically this round two of the masterpiece cake shop case. Um, The big difference in this case uh, is that, you know, I thought Masterpiece Cake Shop was mainly about freedom of religious belief, freedom of free exercise of religion. And I think this case is too. But the interesting thing is that the Supreme Court said, okay, uh, because the petitioners in this case, the uh, the website designer, uh, she had made two two claims. One that, you know, essentially punishing her for not making uh, uh, web designing websites for same-sex weddings uh, violated her uh, free exercise of religion rights um, because, you know, it was her religious beliefs in, in, in marriage that uh, prevented her from doing that. Uh, and secondly, is sort of a secondary claim was uh, it also violates my free speech rights, my, not, my right not to speak a message that 
you know, I disagree with that doesn't comport with my beliefs. These cases have always been seen as sort of free exercise of religion cases. But the Supreme Court said, well, we'll hear your free speech case. I, I mean, your free speech claim, but we're not going to hear your claim on free exercise of religion, which is really odd. And the only reason that I can come up with for the court declining to see this as a free exercise case uh, is, I don't know if you're familiar with the Fulton versus City of Philadelphia ruling. Uh, yes, that, that was a couple of uh, years ago where uh, the Supreme Court held uh, that uh, the City of Philadelphia could not force uh, the Catholic social services into placing foster kids in same-sex households against their religious belief. The court ruled that it, it violated their free exercise of religion. But the thing is that the two new justices on the court, uh, well, first I should say that Justice Alito and, and Justice Gorsuch wrote dissents, uh, well, I'm sorry, concurrences in the judgment, essentially arguing that this 1990 decision in, in, in Smith versus Department of Oregon uh, which a lot of your readers have probably heard of, but that was a 1990 decision by Justice Scalia that essentially said that, uh, you know, we're not going to take, a con you know, First Amendment claims to get exemptions from generally applicable secular laws seriously, like we did in the past. So essentially it's saying that, okay, if you have a secular law, like a non-discrimination law, you can't get around it by claiming a religious exemption based on your religious beliefs that you can't serve certain people. You're still going to get hit with non-discrimination penalties. Of course, that's not what the Smith case was about, but that's the principle embodied in the Smith case. Uh, you know, Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch in this in this recent case said, uh, we just don't like that that case. We should overrule it. But Justice uh, Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh wrote their own separate opinion and, and essentially said, well, in this case, we don't need to overrule Smith uh, to find in favor of Catholic archdiocese because we think that there's an exception that, you know, allows them to prevail. And I, I won't get into the weeds on what the exception is right now. But essentially, Gors I mean, uh, Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh said, you know, I, again, this gets complicated, but we're not sure it's time to overrule Smith because Smith has a very sort of extreme approach to religious exemptions to secular laws. And uh, we're not sure swapping one extreme approach where we apply strict scrutiny to every uh, denial of a religious exemption to a secular law is the way to go either. So they're basically saying, you know, we're looking at two unsatisfactory extremes in terms of the way to look at these cases. And so I, I think that that sort of, I just don't think that just, I know Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Thomas want to overrule this, this decision, but I, I, I think they saw that they didn't have uh, Kavanaugh and Barrett on board right now. And so they just decided to take the case as a free speech case. Well, it's really interesting given how much was made about Justice Coney Barrett's religion and her like the the faith is strong in this one where she's the one that's maybe holding back a little bit the tide from three of the justices to her right about overturning some religious precedent. It's always like you can't really judge a book or a justice until you see what they do on the court. Correct. Right. And I, I we've mentioned this, Ricky and I have talked about this before, but I would say the public largely sees the court as a 6-3 majority, but if you look a little more deeply, a lot of people are seeing it more as a 3-3-3, where you have yeah. um, sort of Mayor Kagan and now Justice Jackson, you have Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Coney Barrett, and then you have Justice Thomas Alito and Gorsuch. So it's it's maybe there is some, despite the conservative majority, there is still a fair amount of tension between those groups on the conservative side. Absolutely. I mean, so we have... Gorsuch, Alito, Thomas, obviously very conservative, uh, but I think that, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, Roberts, Kavanaugh, Barrett are, are very conservative, but I think that they're more sensitive to perceptions of the core, perceptions of their role, and are willing to sort of not <laughs> go as far as the other three on some issues. Right. That's fair to say, especially because the quote unquote swing vote, swing justice in recent years has been people like Kennedy or O'Connor who were conservative. But now the swing vote is really Kavanaugh, who is 
far to that right. Well, or maybe Barrett, uh, you know, we just don't know yet. We haven't seen enough of those two. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so the second case I want to talk about is one that the court just recently decided to take. And this is uh, really two cases combined as one Gonzalez v. Google and Twitter v. v Tamna. And most people out there probably are aware that companies like Google and Twitter and other social media and search platforms have protections, legal protections from civil liability for things that other people post. So essentially, this is a 1996 law, which is known as Section 230, which has been a little, actually, not a little bit more, far more in the news recently for a lot of reasons. And what what that law does, it, it shields, like I said, these platforms from being sued in case other people who they are providing the platform for post content, which is inflammatory or discriminatory or what have you. And President Trump was one that was railing against Section 230 because he argued that these legal protections have allowed social media companies to discriminate against or censor conservatives. These cases come out of two two different cases, but both involving ISIS, the Islamic State, where Google and Twitter were allowing the Islamic State to use their sites to post their content. Um, And the lawsuit, one lawsuit was brought by the family of a student who was killed in the 2015 Paris attack. Um, and the second one was, is brought out of the, it's a violation, the accusation of violation of the anti-terrorism act by allowing ISIS to use their sites. So uh, really interesting because this, this has existed or had existed for 25 years before it really started coming under fire in these last couple of years. So I'm, I'm very curious. I, I have, I haven't done much research myself into this. I don't really know. I don't have any inclination what the justices might do with this. So do you have any thoughts about what might happen? Well, I mean, it wasn't just President Trump railing against Section 230. It was also Justice Thomas. He wrote a number of dissents to the court's denial of cert in a number of cases involving Section 230, where he argued that essentially it was being conferring too broad of an immunity uh, on social media sites like Google, uh, you know, Twitter, et cetera, to censor content that they they thought was harmful or, or damaging. Uh, and so here, here, once again, I think we're seeing uh, Thomas's uh, influence where, you know, he did the same thing in terms of the Second Amendment after the Heller decisions, you know, when the court didn't want to hear those cases. Uh, he, you know, he just kept dissenting uh, from denial of cert and, and uh, saying, you know, we need to we need to take up these cases. And I think that the way the lower courts are handling the thing, these things are wrong. So he's going to get, you know, it seems like he's going to get his chance. I mean, they're going to hear the Section 230 uh, claim in, in the uh, in the Google case. And, um, uh, you know, First Amendment, though, free speech and, and you know, um, Section 230 censoring speech, it doesn't always break down neatly along ideological lines. So it's, it's just not clear how uh, how this is going to come out in the end. I, we, I know where Thomas sits, you know, but I uh, I just don't know where a lot of the other justices would sit on this. They haven't you know, they really haven't given much indication. Now, the other part of this case, it's just not the uh, immunity provisions of Section 230. It's all it's also about to what extent uh, uh, a social media platform like Twitter can be held liable for aiding and abetting under the Anti-Terrorist Act statute. Uh, you know, even putting aside issues of immunity, you know, if, if you get past the issues of immunity and, uh, you know, because of procedural rulings, uh, Twitter was wasn't able to take advantage of Section 230 immunity. So the Ninth Circuit held that Twitter could be held liable for aiding and abetting terrorism for facilitating facilitating communications that led to terrorist activity. So, you know, there are two big questions at issue in these cases with respect to social media platform liability, you know, should be very interesting to watch these cases. Yeah, and that's fascinating, especially in the context of Elon Musk potentially buying Twitter with the goal of having less censorship and allowing more people to express their ideas. If if you allow more people, you're unfortunately, inevitably going to get more extreme ideas. And if all of a sudden the court rules, you can be held liable under or under an anti-terrorism statute that that would certainly be a game changer 
Absolutely right. <laughs> Elon Musk would have to actually start thinking deeply about these things. Right. Well, yeah. So that'll be fascinating to watch. So then I think those were two of the more technical cases, but three of the the bigger cases that I think should be on people's radars is the first one is the students for fair admissions versus Harvard, the students for fair admissions versus North Carolina. So in both cases, the students for fair admissions are alleging that the the admissions processes for a private university in Harvard and a public university in North Carolina were discriminatory against particularly Asian students, but white and Asian students, uh, that these universities, both of which receive public funds, are taking race into account in their admissions processes in ways that violate either Title VI of the Civil Rights Act for Harvard or the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution in North Carolina. Um, So essentially what this boils down to is whether or not schools are going to be able to have affirmative action processes and their admission process in general, or more specifically, are they going to be able to consider race at all in their, in, in their admissions processes? So this would actually be a pretty seismic change as, as once schools have been integrated, the affirmative action and consideration and value on diversity has been one of the chief ways in which we have gotten more diverse schools. So, uh, I think I know which way the court's going to lean on this, Professor, but what are you seeing? Well, I mean, so if you look at the cert petition in this case, uh, uh, the plaintiffs, uh, Asian students and some white students are who believe that they were didn't get into uh, these prestigious schools because, that you know, they were uh, uh, passed over, even though they had better credentials uh, based on racial uh, decisions. Uh you know, they're coming out of the gate very strongly and just asking the court to overrule uh, the Gruder decision, a 2003 decision, where in a five to four decision, Justice O'Connor leading the majority, uh, her and uh, four more liberal members of the court, holding that, you know, that uh, even though strict scrutiny applied to use the use of race in an admissions process, essentially saying that they she thought that diversity in higher education, as long as the schools kept, you know, did a holistic evaluations of candidates and used race as what's called a soft factor, uh, you know, that they could do that. And of course, you know, the dissenters said, well, this soft factor stuff is basically a ruse. They're just managing their numbers to racial quotas. Uh, and um, I think more telling, so, so, so they're coming out of the gates very strong, asking the court to simply overrule Gruder in the same way that the uh, state of Mississippi eventually came around to asking the court to just overrule, uh, you know, Roe versus Wade, seeing a very receptive audience. And as we've seen in the abortion contest, uh, the court isn't shy about doing that. And I don't think has a lot of respect for stare decisis. And and so, um, you know, I think that uh, if I were a betting person, uh, again, I think it's all going to come down to, um, uh, Justice Kavanaugh and, and, and Justice Barrett, whether they're willing to outright overrule the Gruder decision. Now, I think an interesting personal facet of this case is that uh, uh, Justice Barrett has two adopted Black children of her own, which may give her a uh, a, a broader perspective on this issue. And uh, also, uh, Justice Kavanaugh has made made it publicly known that he looks for, you know, diverse racial representation, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, who he would hire for clerkships and so forth. So, um, you know, uh, I don't think that you can, you know, say that this is a slam dunk, that Gruder's going to be overruled. And uh, it just may be, this just may be a replay of the University of Texas case, where you get a majority of the court to say, no, we still have to be, you know, we can still use race as a soft factor, as long as the these schools are doing holistic evaluations and they've convinced us that there are so, no race neutral alternatives to achieving this level of diversity. It just, who knows, it, you know, it just, it's it, the oral arguments I think that are going to be held on Monday are going to be very, very informative as to which way, uh, but I know all eyes are going to be on Barrett and on Kavanaugh. So that's interesting what professor brings up. So this episode will come out on, I guess today, if you're listening to it on 
October 31st, this is the same day that the court is hearing the oral arguments in the Harvard case. So while the decision won't be out until June, you can listen to the oral arguments, which are now recorded and posted online at any point. So if you're at all interested, whether you're in the legal field or not, that might be something you're interested in. One policy question for you, I guess, Professor, is that I guess I am less hesitant than you to think that Grutter is going to be overturned. But if it is overturned, are there any policy measures that schools would be able to take? Because Baki, which is the original like 1978 ruling that allowed colleges and other schools to continue to take like race into account, the underlying, the foundation of that was like a value of diversity. And whatever you say, however you fall on the Dobbs decision, there was ways to legislate around the Dobbs decision. If you believe that people's reproductive rights should be protected in California or Massachusetts, you could do that legislatively. But I don't I don't know at least any recourse leg- a legislature or schools would have if they want to ensure that we are still enrolling enough black and brown people in our institutions. Well, I mean, of course, the other option that is, you know, the proponents of over- overruling Gruder are, are, have always urged is just look at sort of socioeconomic uh, indicia of applicants. Uh, and that's a good enough, a good enough proxy for race to get you the uh, diversity that these universities say they want. But the universities have always pushed back on that saying, no, we've tried that. Uh, and it doesn't get us the level of diversity that we want. And, and that, that's why I think that, um, you know, this is a, this is a hard case to call because, you know, Kavanaugh, Barrett, Roberts, they will realize that, you know, unlike uh, unlike uh, Dobbs, which is is a democracy affirming decision. This would be sort of a democracy busting decision. In other words, it would basically tell uh, Democratic majorities throughout the country that if including white majorities, that if they wanted to implement a program uh, designed to, you know, benefit racial minorities because they think that they have suffered discrimination or continue to suffer discrimination. They're basically telling these majorities that they cannot do that. Uh, and that I think would be a huge step in terms of reading the equal protection clause, which everyone knows as justice Jackson argued, uh, in the uh, voting rights case the other day, what the main purpose, the originalist purpose of the Equal Protection Clause was to prevent ongoing discrimination against Black Americans, uh, particularly in the South, uh, you know, official discrimination by the states. So, you know, I just think that there are a lot of layers of complexity to this case. It, it just, I, 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 I think that they're going to be hesitant to, uh, you know, I, 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 at least the, uh, the three justices in the middle are going to be hesitant to outright overrule Gruder. Is my yeah, that, yeah you've, you've convinced me a little bit and pull, pulled me back for all of those reasons, which is really well said. It would certainly open up the, the court to more accusations that they're just selectively using reasoning when they want to. They'll use history and originalism when it benefits them. They'll use stare decisis when it benefits them. They'll use democracy-affirming decisions when it benefits them. But when it, they don't get the right policy outcomes, they're not going to use that reasoning. Really interesting. Um, speaking of the voting rights case, from last week, though, this is a case out of Alabama where Alabama was doing redistricting. They were drawing their map. Alabama's black population is about 27 percent. But voting rights advocates are saying that the new the newly drawn map in Alabama kind of packs the majority of the black residents of the state into one congressional district, which they argue dilutes the black vote. And so if you if you pack most of the the, the black residents into one district, yeah, chances are they elect a, a black representative, but that puts all of the other black folks in the state into majority white districts. It'll be very difficult, the argument goes, to, to elect black leaders from those congressional districts. Uh, Alabama counters by saying that we're not, we shouldn't have to take race into account at all. We can't, we can't discriminate. We can't intentionally draw lines that dilute the black vote in this case or other minorities votes in, in other states, but we can draw lines without taking race into account. And if you know, most of the black vote is in one district, that's not really our problem. So what, what did you think about those arguments and, and where do you think this case is headed? 
Well, you know, I see this as a, is, is sort of related to the, the whole Bruder uh, issue. You know, to what extent can governments, state governments, uh, well, here it would be Congress telling, you know, telling state governments to take into account race under the Voting Rights Act uh, uh, in order to sort of uh, remedy past discrimination, particularly in the area of voting rights. So, you know, to me, this is, again, it's the same. This has more federalism sort of contours to it. Uh, but, but it, you know, when you step back, it, it raises the question to what extent, you know, if, if Congress, a Democratic majority in Congress is telling states that, you know, uh, they think that, um, well, well, this is really about how you interpret Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And so this case is really about, you know, does Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act require states to go further uh, in terms of accounting for race in the way that they redraw their, their congressional voting districts? And But again, it, the larger issue is to what extent governments can and should take into account race to remedy past and present discrimination uh, on the basis of race. And so if this case comes out before the Grutter decision, I think, I think it's going to be a sort of an important preview of where certain justices might be headed in, in the Grutter decision. Uh, because again, I think it, you know, how you interpret section two of the Voting Rights Act is very murky. Uh, the language is very ambiguous. It's, 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 it's not clear at all. And so I think that that leaves a lot of room for sort of the justices views of, uh, you know, affirmative action, racial preferences to sort of play into the decision that's going to be made here. Yeah, it'll, it'll certainly be fascinating and will, and will dictate the course of jurisprudence and also policymaking of how much states are allowed and the federal government is allowed to take into to take race into account. I think one of the great ironies is the second black justice on the Supreme Court has been, again, this is Justice Thomas, has been the most ardent uh, supporter of ending race-based classifications, which I, I've always found fascinating. But last final case for you, Professor. Well, well just a note on that. If, if the oral arguments are any indication for the uh, voting rights case, uh, you know, the other black justice, Justice Jackson, wow, she came out of the gates extremely strongly trying to turn the originalist tables uh, on, on the conservative members of the court, arguing that, look, the whole point of the Equal Protection and all the 14th Amendment civil rights legislation was to take into account race in order to remedy the discrimination that was being uh, uh, practiced against them. And so uh, if if. You know, if Justice uh, Alito Thomas and Gorsuch thought that, uh, you know, they were going to be able to sort of further their views on the court in a peaceful, <laughs> you know, calm way, I, I would love to be on the fly on the wall in those conference rooms, because I think Justice Jackson is going to be, uh, you know, <laughs> a real advocate for the way she thinks she thinks she thinks sees these things. Yeah, and that was for people interested in that. It's worth at minimum reading some of the transcripts, but actually listening to her questions. Where it was her first day on the bench, and as as Professor alluded to, she was not shy, and the arguments I thought were quite effective in throwing the the conservative wing of the court their their reasoning right back at them. And like like you say, it, and I do think this actually goes back to your point about you know Justice Barrett's adopted children and Justice Kavanaugh's hiring practices is that you can't just divide these things neatly along race. So it, I, I do think that it's really interesting, the dynamic of the court right now. Um, all right, final case for you. This is the most controversial case of the term. If you've heard of this case, it's more B. Harper. You probably haven't heard of that, but you have probably heard, if you're paying attention at all, to the independent state legislature theory, which is a relatively new theory, according to some people, um, whereby that the state legislature, whatever state you live in, they, ha they are the only body of government that are empowered by the Constitution to regulate federal elections so that the state courts are not able to intervene and say that the manner in which the legislature has deemed to run the elections in Massachusetts or California or Texas or North Carolina in this case, they can't deem them unconstitutional. The independent state legislature is so known because the legislature is able to do essentially whatever they want because of, they point to U.S. Constitution, the Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution. So if people have been following this stuff, 
the vast, vast majority of commentary out there, whether on podcasts or in articles, is that this is a, a, a theory that's been invented whole cloth. It is just something that um, the the justice, the chief justice that you clerked for, maybe floated out there back in 2000, and now all of a sudden has this fringe right-wing conservative movement is now thrusting it potentially upon us. And almost every everything I've heard or read, including by conservatives, um, Justice Michael um, Luttig, um, who is a, a if, this famous conservative justice uh, was, I think, Fourth Circuit under George W. Bush for years, or George H. W. Bush was like, "This is this theory like doesn't pass the laugh test. Totally ridiculous." Professor, if that's true, how did justices that are isn't clearly as intelligent as as Gorsuch and Alito and Thomas? How are they even entertaining something like this? In a word, uh, desired results. Right. Okay. I mean. Um... So partisan gerrymandering, I think, is one of the most destructive influences on democracy today. Uh, It occurs in both blue states and red states, uh, probably more often in red states where you crack and pack the voters on the other other side. And it's really the legislators in those states that are electing, deciding who's going to, you know, be elected. Uh, And I, I think it's antithetical to democracy. And uh, I think that if the conservatives go with this, this independent state legislature theory, it would be a stake right in the heart of democracy, because we need state courts to apply state law to make sure that, uh, you know, uh, the voters in the states are being treated according to state voting laws and whatever they require. If they require that the uh, the state legislature does not act in their own self-interest and, 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 and you know, dilute their votes, then we, you know, we should be federalists. We should say that the state courts, you know, should have the power to do that. And this independent state legislature read it rests on this very slim read that the, that the election clause refers to state legislatures in terms of writing it, the regulations for the time, place, and manners of of voting for, uh, you know, federal uh, federal representatives but subject to the oversight of Congress. So it isn't even a primary term. And I agree with those that say that uh, that this is a ridiculous theory. But it also makes me think back when, you know, I don't know if you remember when Obamacare was being argued, there was a Commerce Clause challenge to the individual mandate uh, that would make uh, people who refuse to buy health insurance uh, you know, pay a penalty. And it, it was an attempt to get uh, everyone under universal health care. And, and then one one professor, I think it was David Cole at Georgetown at the time, started floating this theory that I thought sounded absurd that, well, Congress cannot regulate uh, inactivity under the Commerce Clause. And I thought it was absurd because almost any activity can be framed as activity or inactivity, depending upon the way you look at it. Right. Uh, And I just thought it was an absurd theory, but yet uh, five justices ended up, you know, the conservative justices ended up latching onto it and making it part of our constitutional law. So I don't put anything past, uh, you know, sort of what's going on on the court in terms of achieving, you know, desired results. And, uh, but here I think again, uh, you're going to have to look at, and even I think George Gorsuch's vote would be in play here, uh, because Gorsuch has sort of uh, idiosyncrasies when it comes to certain principles that he he will he will not tolerate, and so I think you know um, you know you're, you're going to have to convince Kavanaugh, Barrett, Roberts, or Gorsuch, a combination of them, that uh, to basically tell state courts they have no power to apply state law to legislative decisions to engage in po- political gerrymandering. I just, I just hope that that does not happen. Although again, I've seen this wacky theory thing happen in the past where it's become constitutional law. So, you know, who knows, keep an eye on it because as professors kind of implying here, this would be a, a sea change and probably if not definitely bad for democracy, if it happens. So something to keep an eye on. And in that vein, Professor, is there anything else that you're keeping an eye on, either a specific case or trends amongst the justices over this coming term? 
Well, this term, well, it just, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what, I mean, they've been very quiet after the initial uh, conference at the beginning of this term. All of these major cases, except for the Google and the Twitter case, were granted uh, last term to be heard this term. And so the only one that, that I think is, is you know, sort of uh, high profile is, is the Google and Twitter one. And, and last week they didn't grant anything. So, you know, I don't know if after the tumultuous last term and then you have the, the blockbuster affirmative action and the voting rights cases, if they just don't want to add anything more to their agenda, they want to sort of try to keep the rest of it quiet. I don't know. We'll see, you know, but uh, they still have a lot of cases yet to grant uh, for the remainder of the term. Yeah, that, that will be really interesting to watch. All right, Professor, that's it. Um, I can't thank you enough. I know for our listeners out there, we probably got a little bit in the weeds with legal theory and, and judicial precedent, but I hope in general, this gives you a, an overall sense of some of the big issues that the court's going to be looking at in this term. Well, I will offer if any of your listeners, yes, I think, you know, it's hard to discuss some of these topics without getting into some amount of legal technicalities. But if any of your listeners hear something and have a question about it and want to email me at uh, Pepperdine Caruso School of Law, I'd be happy to to take their, you know, take that question and try to well, explain. Well, that's, inc- that's incredibly generous of you. And it's always incredibly generous of you to give me so much time tonight. And I know Ricky appreciates it too. So thank you so much, Professor. We, we really do appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Brendan. All right. So once again, thank you so much to Professor McDonald for being so generous with his time this evening, just feel really lucky to get that sort of in-depth and high-quality expert analysis on the Supreme Court. There are a few people that can do what he just did, and for him to to give us so much of, of his time and perspective is, and I, I've said it a lot in this last month, but I feel extremely fortunate, and so I hope people out there enjoy it as well, and a, a wonderful offer. If if you have follow-up questions for him, you can look him up again. He's a professor at the Crusoe School of Law at Pepperdine. I won't talk too much because just really me. I'm sure you all have heard enough from me, but a couple of things that he that we kept coming back to that stood out to me. The first is that I would have chalked up more of these quote-unquote, wins to the conservative justices than he is willing to give. I I thought heading into this conversation that affirmative action was out the window, that the Voting Rights Act would continue to be gutted, um, that that the independent state legislature theory had a legitimate shot of succeeding. And he threw a little bit um, of cold water in in probably a good way for most people listening out there that, hey, but not so fast yet, my Lee Corso, not so fast yet, my friends, where maybe the the more far right of the, the three justices might be pulling it the court more in that direction. But the, the justices to keep an eye on are really Roberts, Coney Barrett, and Kavanaugh. And so that's where people's eye should really be if you want to see how far to the right the court will continue to be pulled this term. The second thing that continues to come up is how do we as a country, as a judiciary continue to deal with America's original sin of slavery and the continued sin of racism and systemic discrimination that has happened, uh, particularly for black people in this country, but for minorities in general, certainly the more conservative justices led by, as we talked about justice Thomas, justice Roberts, in this case, justice Alito have been arguing that the way to, if you don't want people to, you know, talk about race and have racial classifications and to treat you one way based on your race, then you should just stop differentiating based on race. And their view is that the constitution, that the amendments are and should be race neutral and colorblind. And they often cite cases like Brown v. Board, which pretty much said you can't discriminate against someone based on the color of their skin. MLK's famous speech of don't judge my kids on the color of their skin, but on the, the quality of their character. Justice Thomas has long said, we, we can't just, how long are we going to keep favoring black people in this country? At some point it has to end. And we like just got to move on. That obviously conflicts a lot with what we're continuing to see in our country in terms of outcomes, whether they are socioeconomic or racial or health or, or otherwise. And so 
I think that Professor was right to push out how strong that Justice Jackson came out saying explicitly that the Constitution never was colorblind. Color was baked right into the original Constitution. And certainly the amendments, 13, 14, 15 in particular, were not colorblind. They were designed specifically to address slavery and racial discrimination against Black people. And so that that dynamic will be, I mean, it's something that perhaps we're always going to have to deal with, but is going to be brought up, is brought to a head, at least at the Supreme Court level in this coming term. Last word, I, I imagine if you've gotten this far, you understand why we're talking about the Supreme Court term now and why we wanted to get this episode in before the election, where the the court's relatively young right now. Um, Justice Thomas is the oldest. He's 74. Alito's 72. Sotomayor is 68. Robert 67. Then you're Kagan, 62. Kavanaugh, 57. Gorsuch, 54. Um, Katanya Brown-Jackson is 51, and Amy Coney Barrett is 50. So it, it is a relatively young court, but you guys, you never know. And the senators that people are electing in a week are going to likely be the ones who serve the next six years, or <laughs> this next six years, next president, uh, last half of the President Biden's term, and the whoever the new president might be or this the Biden second term and they'll be the ones that are potentially if, if it's a Republican president in two years who knows you might have Thomas and or Alito stepping down if it's a Democratic president you might have Justice Sotomayor stepping stepping down um, and you, know, you don't wish this on anybody with people's health but as, as they get older you never know what could happen or when and so um, these decisions might seem remote but in a couple of years you could be looking back at how the race in Pennsylvania turned out or the race in Georgia or Nevada turned out as the way a president Biden or a Republican president is able to confirm or not confirm justices they want to. So it's all tied together. This is our last episode before the actual midterm elections. Again, wish Ricky and Jenny a wonderful honeymoon when they return. Ricky and I will do a midterm reaction next week. So look forward to that. For everyone that has listened to this episode that has listened over the past month or even the past year, um, we really greatly appreciate all the support, all the kind words that people that send us texts or messages on, on Instagram and, and share it with their friends. It's it's really been a particularly wonderful month. Uh, so thank you all and go vote. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head and folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The values sometimes being wrong Some mornings you away Some morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share loud American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old mainstream may not sell 
full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for hope I used to find and chase the lies head. Folks with different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and a early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lies head. Folks with different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.